good morning to you. You all right? Uh, summer is gone. Isn't it nice? You started getting all your fall drinks out, right? All the cinnamon and pumpkin and all that. Who's decorated already? Don't be shy. I know some of you got, we got some early decorators out there, I'm sure. You're ready for the holidays. They are upon us here. Just, man, 2022 is here. So, whew, our lives are just slipping away. If you're new to Citadel Square, welcome uh, to our church. We are in the middle of a church series. Uh, I want to give thanks to AJ and Pastor Steve, both those men being able to stand in the pulpit these past two weeks and encourage us from God's word in Matthew and in Ephesians. So I give thanks for them. And uh, wasn't that great? Just encouraging uh, work that they did in the pulpit. We had the chance to go out of town for a little bit. We went to a little bitty, um, a little bitty place outside of Asheville and just uh, observed the mountains, got to play with baby goats. That was a part of the thing, played in a creek, kids loved it, it was a great time. I had a goat climb my back. I wish I had a picture, but we were too busy holding baby goats to get a picture of that. But we had fun getting away and just uh, decompressing a little bit. So thanks to those men, I really appreciate it. Uh, Go ahead and grab your Bibles uh, if you got them. And I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We've seen how Christ has... has, um, has a plan to build his church from Matthew chapter 16. We looked at that. We looked at how Jesus was going to build his church and the gates of hell would not overcome it. That the church uh, is built upon the confession of Jesus Christ and who he is. And that it was an advancing organization. And we saw that from Matthew 16 and what AJ taught us. And then we saw Ephesians chapter 5 and we looked at the, the beauty of the marriage uh, that we, we closed our book of Revelation with, where Christ comes to get his bride, and the bride had made herself ready. And the beauty of that image of Christ being with his people for all eternity, uh, and it really showed us the preciousness of that covenant relationship, of which marriage is just a shadow of the truer reality of what God has done through Christ to ransom people to himself and to be with them forever and all time. So. Uh, today is a, uh, is a really big day for us as a church, a really a day that I have been looking forward to, a day I'm really excited about. We're going to have the opportunity to install two men as elders here this morning toward the end of our time. And uh, when you teach on elders, there's lots of passages that you could go to. You could look at the, uh, the priority of the word and prayer that shows up in Acts chapter 6, where the elders say, we're not going to give ourselves a service of tables. We're going to prioritize what God has called us to in uh, the ministry of prayer and the ministry of God's word. You could look at Acts chapter 20, where Paul talks to the Ephesian elders and gathers them together as he gets ready to move toward the end of his life. And he says, I didn't shrink back from sharing with you the whole counsel of God. And he tells them there to be on guard uh, because men will rise from among your own selves speaking twisted things to draw the brothers away from them. So you could talk about uh, how these men stand in the gap and protect the flock. You could talk about their character from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, that there are certain character qualifications that God has given uh, these men to live up to in the life of the church. But as we've looked and thought about the church up to this point in Matthew 16 and Ephesians chapter 5, I said, I want to look and kind of ask a question, not so much about elders, but I want you to see something about how God has designed the church. What is the goal of the church? When you join a church, what are you signing up for? How has Jesus designed his church to work? What should we be doing? Are we gathered together just to sing loud songs? Are we gathered together primarily because we have great parking in downtown Charleston? Is that the thing that draws you to downtown Charleston through the floodwaters to the one large surface lot that you can park in? Is it the beauty of the facility? What is God doing in a church when he gathers people together? And what I want to show you from Ephesians chapter 4 is something so remarkable. In fact, the church is the only institution on earth that is committed to this primary end that you're going to see in Ephesians chapter 4. He wires it. He designs it. You're going to see the schematics and the blueprints for a church that pleases God. You remember Revelation 2 and 3 when we looked at that? 
and we looked at these churches that faced a variety of struggles, sufferings, loss, people being imprisoned. And there were churches that rose to the occasion and who Jesus said he was proud of. How do we have a church that Jesus would be pleased at? Well, he gives it to us in the book of Ephesians. He shows you the schema, the, the blueprints of how this church that he has designed and won by his blood, what it's supposed to be giving its time and attention to. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of a running start in Ephesians chapter four, verse one, and then we're gonna land in 11 through 16 as we look at the structures that Jesus Christ has put in place to make sure that we all reach one major primary end in Ephesians, all right? You with me? Let's pray and ask God for his grace. Father in heaven, as we look into your word here this morning for these few minutes, we pray for the, um, the gift of illumination, that we would see things here in your word that no natural man could see, but things that only the spirit of God would interpret for us. That as we come to your word, we come as desperate individuals, skeptical of our own wisdom, harassed by the sins that we bring into this place, the, the strongholds of unbelief that so often characterize our prayers. Father, we come as desperate individuals longing for you to speak through your word and through your spirit to the deepest parts of who we are. And we pause and just for a minute confess our utter inability our total spiritual scarcity, apart from what you have chosen to do and to work in us by the resurrection of your son. So fathers, we look at the book of Ephesians here, we pray that the words would come off the page and hit us in the heart and cause us to leave this place with joy and thanksgiving and delight that you would pursue us and love us and step into a covenant relationship with us, not because of what we have done, but because you have pursued and loved and sacrificed for us. So Father, we pray for your grace here this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, uh, look at, uh, you got your Bibles? Y'all there, Ephesians chapter four, verse one, okay? Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul's letters often are broken in half. Paul spends uh, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 giving you massive doctrinal ideas. In Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about the plan of God, about the eternal uh, goal that God has designed his church for, to the praise of his glory of his grace, he says. And at the end of Ephesians 1, he prays for you. He prays for us as a church that we would somehow have the spirit of knowledge and discernment and wisdom to understand the gravity of that plan. And then in Ephesians 2, he knits together people from all sorts of backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, into one new body because of what Christ has done on the cross. It says that Jesus broke down the hostility to reunite people of every background, of every uh, ethnicity, of every socioeconomic strata, and to bring them together by his blood into one new man. Then in Ephesians chapter 3, he talks about the church. He says that the church is the place where God's manifold wisdom would now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That when you look into the church, you glorify God for what he is doing. And then at the end of Ephesians 3, he prays. In one, he prays for your understanding to increase. In three, he prays that you would so uh, experience the love of Christ in the church. Now imagine that, imagine that the church was the place on this planet where you could tangibly know the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of Jesus Christ for you. Imagine that, that's what the church is supposed to be. Then as he turns the corner into Ephesians 4 verse one, I wanna show you something. You see, you see what verse, uh, chapter four verse one says. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to what? To walk, okay, you with me? Now go down to four, uh, verse, um, 
I'm in 2 Corinthians. What in? It's not in that book. Sorry. I'm rusty. Look, uh, look at 4.17, okay? Now, I want you to show how Paul brackets his thinking here with two big ideas. One, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, look at 4.17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer what? Walk as the Gentiles do. When you come into the church, in the place where we would be learning and growing in the knowledge of the depth and breadth and height and length of the love of Christ for us, we come into a place with new ground rules. We don't do life like they do life out there. We don't do conversation the way they do conversation out there, amen? That there is a different metric of us evaluating the kind of men and women God has called us to be. And Paul starts Ephesians 4.1 like that. Now look at Ephesians 4.1 with me. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which, uh, to which you have been called. Isn't that encouraging? That Paul doesn't give you all this doctrine and then start with folding his arms. He says, I urge you to live worthy. Understand the kind of life that Jesus Christ calls you to live because of what he has done for you. Okay, get that into your mind and heart. Now, here's how it looks. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Would you like to go to that church? With everybody in here, humble. That's convicting. Let's, let's just pray and go home. Ugh. Everybody here, gentle. Everybody having patience and bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity. You know how fast people want to eliminate unity today? How fast can I disconnect from these people? You feel that? You feel that, that, that being alive in our culture today? How quick can I cut you off? How quick can I create disunity? How quick can I ignore and leave the covenant relationships of the body of Christ? Eager to maintain the spirit of unity, the bond of peace. Now watch this. How does that happen? That's a pretty high calling, wouldn't you agree? That's a pretty high design for the church that Jesus Christ has. Now, look, look what he does. I want you to watch this because he's building an argument. Look at verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, the worthy calling of verse 1. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How many times do you use the word One. Seven times in two verses. What's the point? One. The oneness, the unity of the body. He's already talked about this in Ephesians 2. He's talked about the one new man and all of it. Listen, unity in the church only comes from God. Nowhere else. There's no other place. That unity among the people of God can be created except going back to the fountain of unity, the Trinity himself. Do you see what it is here? One spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. Where does unity come from? From the triune God of heaven and earth. That's where unity begins. And you see how we're supposed to walk. Humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity. Why? Because we all have been unified into one body because of what God has done. Okay? You tracking with me so far? Now, look at verse 7. You see how verse uh, 7 starts with a, a contrast word? What's the word? But. So, unity, oneness, God overall, in all, through all, right? Collective nouns, but there's a contrast here. Because when you step into the church, you know the church is filled with not only uh, unity, or it's not really, you know, it's not filled with uh, a oneness or a uniformity. The church is full of what? Diversity. The church is filled with variety. Not one of you have the same thumbprint, not one of you have the same eye color, not one of you have the same background, not one of you all uh, have 
uh, the unique upbringing that you bring into this room, but the unity that God has won through his death, burial, and resurrection in Jesus Christ is now put on display as now we turn from the oneness that God gives to now the individuality of the people in the church. We aren't just stamped and clones, are we? That Jesus brings a diverse people into this body. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of you now in the body of Christ have been given grace, proportionate, individual gifts to serve the body of Christ. That'll make clear as we work our way through this passage. But there are different gifts. You can see this in Ephesians uh, 4. You can also see it in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter 4. All of these passages talk about the diversity of the body that is gifted and pulled together. You have multiple metaphors that Paul uses in the New Testament for what the body is. We've already seen one that Jesus uses in Matthew 16 and that Paul uses here in Ephesians chapter 2. It's that of a building. Right? We are built together. Peter talks about that, that you as living stones are being built together into a temple. Paul in Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, both use the body analogy. Some of you are pinky, some of you are eyes, some of you are, are livers, some of you are hands, some of you are mouths. They're all different, diverse, various kinds of gifts that God puts into the body. Now, he uses and quotes something here in, in verse 8 that is Psalm 68. You don't need to turn there. It's a, it's a victory enthronement psalm. It's the picture of a general coming back from battle and leading the captives from their captivity back into their homeland. And here comes this victorious general with literally Psalm 68 says, he, you see how it says in verse 8, therefore he says when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Literally the Greek is, he led captive captivity. Now that sounds kind of familiar from Matthew 16, doesn't it? That Jesus Christ now has, is building the church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Here's the picture. Jesus Christ ransomed you from the power of sin's captivity. You believe that? Both of you do. That's good. That's good. I'm glad you came to this church this morning. Here's Jesus returning. Now watch how he goes on to build this example. Look at what he says in, in verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? What is that? What would you call that, that Jesus did when he comes from heaven to earth? We're about to celebrate. It starts with N, sounds like carnation. It's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He, he comes to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. He shows up with the heart of God's love to rescue and to redeem those who are bound and shackled by sin. And then through his perfect life, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, and then now the remainder of the verse in verse 10, he who descended is the one who also what? Ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That Jesus rescued his people from the clutches of death. He rescued his people from spiritual death and brokenness from the grave and rescued and brought them back into his kingdom. That uh, The scriptures say that you have been uh, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. See, unity in the body is a blood-bought unity. Jesus, with his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, rescued you, gifted you, and then gave gifts to the body. Now, this picture of this Roman general coming back into the city, leading these captives that were captive into freedom and joy, now does something very, very important. It says he distributes and gives gifts to men. Now, part of this, the line of thinking here is that Paul has just told us that you have been gifted. But what he's about to do next is to say that you have been gifted. Watch this. Verse 11. Here's where we're going to, that's, that's the introduction. Okay, that's pretty good. That's 15 minutes of introduction. 
You have been individually gifted. You have personally been ransomed. Jesus loves you and died for you and now has gifted you. But now he's using this illustration of the body. He's using the plural. He's moved from total unity to individual gifting to now a corporate idea. How is this thing going to work? Look at 11. And he gave the apostles and the prophets. These are men who are given to the church. Now just go back just one chapter into uh, two chapters into, into Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. You've been brought into his family built on the foundation of the what? The apostles and the prophets, this, these individuals are the, uh, the ones who receive spiritual truth from God. They're the doctrine carriers into the New Testament church age, the apostles and the prophets. They're the foundation of the church. But now the church is being built, as we'll see in this passage. Now he moves, they're sequential. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says that to the church, uh, God has appointed first apostles, then prophets, then teachers. And I want you to see the sequence of gifts that God has given to his church. He starts with apostles and prophets. Then who does he move to? What's it say? Starts with E. Evangelists. Evangelists show up first in the book of Acts. Philip is one of the ones that we, we see carrying on. The evangelists uh, are like the spark. They're the ones who take the gospel of the doctrine of Jesus Christ and they begin to propagate it forward. They begin to communicate the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They begin to communicate that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace as a gift because of Jesus Christ. And as these individuals move out in the book of Acts, Paul talks to Timothy and he tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Continue to communicate the truth of Jesus and who he is to the culture in which you live. And now in Acts, as persecution arises against the church, it's as if the boot of Satan falls upon the fire that was started by the spirit and the embers explode outward catching fire to people in all courses of life you see in the book of Acts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, now what? You have the shepherds and teachers. Probably the Greek puts these two terms together kind of into shepherd teachers. But these are the individuals now that continue to propagate the truth of the word of God into the people of God. One commentator said this, that the evangelists are the obstetricians. They deliver the babies. That the shepherd teachers are the pediatricians. He, they make sure that they reach maturity. I've got six kids. I've got 28 illustrations of pediatric issues that have happened in my family. So just trust me on this, that that's a good illustration. The shepherd teachers... Now, there's three kind of big words that are used for these uh, shepherd teachers and how they operate in the life of the church. You have uh, presbyteros is a word that essentially means old man, old guy, speaks to who he is. There's got to be maturity in these men. Number two, another one is episkopos, means overseer, sometimes translated in the scriptures as bishop. That speaks to uh, what he does, that he exercises oversight over the spiritual well-being of the flock of God. And then the other one is shepherd or poimeno. It's an individual who cares, that speaks to his heart and his desire that the people of God would be built up, would be encouraged, would reach maturity. Now these shepherd teachers are given here for a very specific purpose. And let me, let me talk about this just for a second. In our culture today, there is a pervasive skepticism about leadership. Do you know that? Which is a perfect temptation in our culture at this day and time because fundamentally you trust you. You trust your perspective. You trust the way you see life. You trust uh, the particular convictions that you have and you trust that they are totally reasoned out and they totally make sense to you. And what happens a lot of times is in leadership, Satan aims for the leader. 
Because if he can hit the leader, he can cripple the flock. So that when you move into the New Testament and you start to see Jesus speak about leadership and Paul speak about leadership, Jesus will say things to Pilate like, you would have no power unless it was given to you from my, from my Father in heaven. Remember that? Jesus, toward the end of his life, he recognizes that authorities are given by God in seasons for specific purposes that only fall according to the plan of God. When Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, he talks about there is no authority except that which is from God, and it's established by God. And then he goes on to talk about the governmental authorities and how they don't bear the sword for nothing. But in the church, the way Christ has designed it is to give to the church men of maturity and oversight and tender love and care that the church might be brought to what you're about to see here. There is one single institution on the face of this planet that is particularly given to your spiritual maturity. And Jesus is so invested in your spiritual maturity that he gives men to lead. He so loves you and loves his church that he will ransom people from the grips of Satan and from hell, redeem them, restore them, gift them, and then hand them to the church. For what end? Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. You know what that word equip is? It's a great word. We got a lot of doctors in our church. Uh, the word equip is used in the Greek outside of the Bible to refer. It's probably better used. It's used in uh, Galatians 6 uh, that uh, if any man is trapped in sin, you who are spiritual should restore such a one. It's a word used of setting a broken bone to bring it back into health. We have a lot of people who come to our church and find our church from all sorts of places. They find it online. They find it because of a friend. And I've got stories on both hands that I could count of people who come into this church in this place and this time wounded and hurt and uh, struggling with the difficulty and the winds of life. And our goal here is to help people take their next step with Jesus Christ from weakness to strength, from inability to ability, from ignorance to knowledge, from walking by sight to walking by, do you get it? And when you come and you begin to have the word of God ministered to, you heart, to your heart and you begin to live in relationship with others who now understand what it means to be a part of a church. Have you been watching the videos that our team has put out on our email about how individuals in our church have intentionally served and loved somebody else and helped people get connected and move forward in their walk with Christ? What a beautiful picture of God's spirit at work in our church. So that these men are now given to the church to equip, to mend, to bring into wholeness, to move them from weakness to strength, to restore individuals who come into this body. For what? The work. You know, Michael Phelps, you remember Michael Phelps, the swimmer, right? He has 358 gold medals, whatever he has, greatest number of gold medals, whatever. He would eat when he was training 12,000 calories a day. Now, if you don't know how many calories you're supposed to eat a day, it's like 5,000, 6,000. I don't know what it is. It's like two. I see. I knew I'd get somebody out there going like, that doesn't seem right. I don't, man, I didn't, I didn't give me an extra patty. I, this is good. I want to lead people away in their diets, right? Uh, listen, restoration is an important process of the spiritual walk. Moving from brokenness to wholeness, boy, it is such an important part. But there's come, there should come a point in our spiritual lives when we uh, stop meeting with counselors. You with me? Dallas, am I right on this? Janie? That we want to move people from weakness to wholeness. We want to take what is out of joint and put it in joint that they might be healed. 
Now, one of the temptations that happens when you are experiencing the difficulty in life is that you forget the fact that God is restoring you for something. And if you don't move from brokenness to wholeness to work, you're like eating like an Olympian but napping like a bear. And you're getting ready for hibernation. And you've forgotten that, let's say, when athletes go through surgery, they want to get back on the field. So these men are given to God's people to bring them into wholeness and restoration and strength so that they might now be about the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. That you have a ministry to somebody else. Do you know that? That you are meant to be used in the body of Christ to bring somebody else into spiritual maturity. What's our goal as elders? To help you, restore you, strengthen you, uh, put some weight on the bar, get your knees, get your elbows strong, start moving and getting in the game. So that you would do somebody deliberate spiritual good in the life of our church. How long? Verse 13. Until we all, how many of us? How many of us are not at maturity yet? Come on. All of us. We're not there yet, are we? What do we need? We need all of us until we all attain to what? The unity of the faith. That's not the exercise of faith. That's the content of faith. There are some things about Jesus Christ that you don't know yet. And I am so thrilled that you are in this church. Because as you are in this church and we are committed to your spiritual growth, you are going to learn some things about Jesus Christ that will make you weep, that will restore areas of your heart where you will move into courageous faith in areas where you used to be weak. And our church is going to be used to build you up and encourage you and stand beside you in the struggles of life. And God's going to use you in somebody else's life to do that too. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I am not aiming, God's church, Jesus Christ is not aiming at your full potential. He is aiming at your Christ-likeness. He is aiming at transforming you from one image to another into the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. That's the standard. The mature manhood that Paul talks about is your Christ-likeness. What am I absolutely certain that God is working in your life right now? I am absolutely certain that he is working in the variety of situations and struggles and circumstances and fears and abilities and spiritual gifts that he's given you that you might be fully mature, just like Jesus. He's committed to that in you. Do you believe that? Why else would you join a church if not to be committed to being transformed from one image of glory to another? That can only happen here. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now watch the danger. He goes on in the danger here in verse uh, 14. So that So you see that? Godly men, gifted for the maturity of the body until we all reach maturity to the full stature of Jesus Christ. Because if you don't, there's a danger. There's a danger in your spiritual life right now. There's a danger in Steve's spiritual life right now. And the danger is that I wouldn't move to maturity, that I would remain in immaturity. See, being motionless spiritually is being committed to perpetual immaturity. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. Well, children seem to be a a pretty positive thing in the scriptures, right? Jesus talks about, let the little children come to me. But here in Ephesians 4, being a child comes with certain difficulties. Look at what it says. Tossed to and fro by the waves. You ever been seasick? Who isn't that bad? I had a buddy who liked to uh, do wakeboarding. And he's like, come out on the boat and do wakeboarding with me. And he would do wakeboarding and he'd try to like flip the people off the back of the boat. And all of us who were sitting in the boat were like, look at the horizon. Look at the horizon. Don't barf on your friend. Oh boy. 
What's that picture for you? Tossed to and fro, perpetually unstable. You ever get out on the water and not have your sea legs? There's no stability whatsoever, is that the winds move and the waves move and there's no stability in the lives of children. They're not rooted. What are they tossed to and fro by? They're not tossed to and fro by circumstances. They're tossed to and fro by and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Do you know the winds are blowing out there? Do you know it's easy for you to walk out into the world and begin to lose your stability of the things that you believe because of what you experience and what you hear? See, perpetual immaturity, remaining as a child, is an incredibly dangerous place to be. Tossed to and fro by human cunning. Human cunning is a great word. It's the word K-U-B-I-A. Cubia, it's where we get the term for dice. So that this term, when used in the Greek, would speak of those who would play with weighted dice. Now, if you play with weighted dice, as I know, Colin, you probably play a lot of dice, right? <laughs> Not really. Uh, if you play with weighted dice, your ambition is now to fleece people of their money, right? Don't act like you don't know what dice are, okay? <laughs> Roll with me in this illustration. By human cunning, the goal is to take their money. The goal is to win. The goal is to fleece the individuals. And it's so interesting here that in the context of Paul talking about immaturity, in talking about kids, he talks about kids. How long do you think it would take? I, my kids are about, my oldest are uh, 11 and 10, and I have a seven-year-old, and then the four and a two. And from time to time, we'll play crazy eights and we'll play a variety of, you know, different kind of card games. And sooner or later, I'll show them some basic sleight of hand. Now, how, if you imagine, you were to give your kids all the money you had and then let them go into a casino, how long do you think they would, till it would be, till they came out of the casino without any money? Moments. Moments, you wouldn't even turn the car off. <laughs> this is what immaturity looks like. It looks like being taken advantage of. That, that the dice players doctrinally, the card mechanics doctrinally now begin to have an ambition for your life to make you remain in immaturity through human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul uses the same word for schemes over in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Do you know, remember, you have an adversary, the devil prowling around seeking whom he may devour, and he would love to get you away from the church, away from the word of God, away from prayer, away from people who spiritually want to do you good. And this is one of the great temptations in our culture today that is committed to individualism, is to continually remove myself from any kind of spiritual input because me and Jesus are fine. And you're about to get all your money taken. Well, how do we do it? How do we grow? Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Which means maturity is particularly tied to this activity. It's particularly tied to your commitment, number one, to the truth of God. It's particularly tied to what you believe about Jesus Christ, about how much this book that points to the doctrine of God and the glory of God and the kindness of God and the power of God speaks into your life. And the number one way to remain, I think in context here, in immaturity, 
is to only do half the equation, is to make your life primarily about speaking truth, to advance in the things that you know with a calloused indifference to others means that you are immature, means that you are dedicatedly immature. And you can fall off on the other side, right? You can say, gosh, I just don't need that much Bible in my life. I know a couple of verses. I'm just enough to be dangerous. I should just go out and love people. And love without truth keeps you in perpetual immaturity. But when you bring these two together, real, mature, godly ministry can happen. That my life is punctuated, these plateaus in my life that were broken through when I went to the next level by men of God who were willing to speak the truth in love to me. See, far too often we come into our relationship with God through faith. We come into beginning to know the scriptural truths. But then now as Christians, our conversation starts to be more about our struggles in life, the thing that we're trying to go do, the vacations we'll go on, the amount of money that I'm going to make. And then our conversation slowly and surely moves away from speaking the truth in love to just being really kind conversations. Well, we're really just nice to each other. Our goal as Christians is to be nice. Your goal as a Christian is not to be nice. Your goal as a Christian is to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to speak the truth in love. Do you want to grow? Are your ears open to those who would speak the truth in love to you? Do you have the courage in the conversations that you are having with your kids and with your neighbors to be able to speak the truth of God in love? Is your truth wrapped in love? Does your love strengthen by the rebar of truth? That's how we are going to reach maturity. Do you believe that? Move your head in a direction. Yeah, okay, Whew, good. Okay, you're with me. This is good. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into how many ways? Every way. Are there areas of your life where the truth of God has not penetrated yet? Yep, I know there are in mine. That where my, where my words are more harsh than they need to be, where I don't have the tenderness that I ought to have, that there's not kindness about the love in my life and the way I speak or the way I lead or the way I encourage or the way I teach or all of those things. I want to grow up. I want to grow. I want to be the man that God wants for me to be. I want there to be in you a desire and a hunger to be the woman of God that he wants you to be, to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now watch this, this is so good. Now we're back again. We've talked about the gifts that God has given to his church and these men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, and now we're coming back to the purpose of the church. We're coming back to the head that the elders don't rule beside Christ. It's not like Jesus, Steve, AJ, right? It's not like this triumvirate. It's the elders who rule, rule beneath Christ, who is the head of the church. They are given to the church to serve and to love and to pray and to give and to speak and preach the truth of God that you might be built up. And now this whole body, watch how the illustration works, that you would grow up in every way into the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now we're back to the whole thing working together. We're back to every one of you having a particular gift that's been apportioned by Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, given to you that you might help somebody else grow in their maturity. And we have the elders who are in place to preach and teach and pray that you might grow into all that Jesus Christ has for you to do. Now, do you see the illustration? Now, I didn't go to med school but one thing I know is that if we have a pile of body parts, we have diversity, but we don't have life. You with me? To have life, you need body parts that are connected together and to the head. You with me? That's how life works. Unity, diversity. 
empowerment to the whole body, all the way down to my fingers and my toes, everywhere serving the ultimate purpose of Jesus Christ's glory, who is the head and gives direction and life. You know what this word equipped here means? It's not the earlier word equipped, which means to set a bone. Equipped here means supplied. That Jesus Christ so loves you that he has called you and saved you and put you into a body that you might know and work for the ends of the glory of Christ in your life. And the place he does that is the church. And as the church serves the ends of what Jesus calls it to do, it's like a dancer. Every single muscle is taut and strong and in place and for the express purpose of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We don't, every single one of you has been gifted to be a part of the body of Christ. These men that we're about to install as elders are gifts to this body that this body might reach maturity in Jesus Christ. And I want you to get that in your heart because listen, I know the temptation towards skepticism about leaders. I have seen it for my 20 years in ministry where leadership is, is kind of looked at with short of your arms folded and you're just waiting for some guy to blow it. And I wanted to teach this text so that we as a church would appreciate the gift that Jesus Christ himself is now giving to us as a body. You with me? So I'm gonna call up AJ and uh, Allison and I'm gonna call up Martin and Emily. Their wives are gonna come with them because every man who serves in the uh, position as elder uh, has a, a woman who's next to him who feels the weight of the position. You guys can, why don't you guys come up right here? That'd be great. Uh, and these women represent uh, the families of these men as well because, uh, you know, just like Suzanne is my, my greatest counselor, that I could not do what I do in ministry were it not for Suzanne. I know these men would say the same about, about their wives. So, uh, these men are going to come, and uh, we're going to pray for them. I'm going to ask Steve to come as well. I know he's somewhere here. Where'd you go, Steve-o? Somewhere? He's just chilling in the back, drinking coffee. There he is. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about this process. Uh, we started praying uh, about this last year toward the end of the year, and um, in March, of this year, we put the all call out to the congregation uh, for nominations of men who that uh, would fit the categories and the character of First Timothy three and First uh, or in Titus chapter one, Acts twenty, Acts chapter six, things that I've already mentioned before. Uh, and we worked through a process with these men. And Steve would tell you um, that this process for us was very deliberate. We were very, very prayerful about this. This is not arbitrary for us. We didn't just kind of wing it and you know start throwing darts at a wall. Uh, we prayed and we asked God and we laid men before him and we said, God, would you lead us for the next generation of men and leaders that you want to lead this church at this time? And I can say with great confidence, I know Steve would say too, that God has led us every single step of the way. So this is not something that uh, comes from me or comes from Steve. We believe this comes from Jesus Christ and giving men to this body for the sake of our spiritual maturity until we all reach the unity of the faith. All right, so as we lay hands on these men and install them as elders, I'm going to read to you uh, from 1 Peter chapter 5, which I think is a helpful passage for us to meditate on, for these men to meditate on as we consider what they're being called to do in shepherding the flock. And then Steve's going to pray, and uh, I'm going to call the band up here as I pray, and then we'll close our time here together. All right? I'm going to ask you, if, uh, as members of Citadel Square, those of you who are members, if you would stand during this time as well as we install these men and give thanks for them uh, at this time and this place. You know, you're trying to trick me, Martin. Uh, many of you may know AJ. Let me, let me talk about Martin just for a minute. Many of you may not know Martin. Martin's been a church member for the past uh, about three and a half years. And as a man, both of these men, let me kind of brag on them for a minute. Both of these men have been characterized in several situations that come to mind immediately for me. Uh, for their tenderness, uh, in, in loving and leading their homes for their uh, tenacity in the way that they pray for you as a church, the way they think about uh, what God wants for this church, uh, their patience 
in times where they have, I have seen them make decisions to stay in places where it would be easier to leave. So these are men that I commend to you, I know Steve commends to you, as men uh, that we should follow and submit to uh, as our church desires to grow and to be all of what it means to be a church that pleases Jesus Christ, all right? Here's 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Steve, would you lead us in prayer? Would you guys join me as we pray? Father God, we come now and give you thanks for the gift of leadership, as Steve has shared with us this morning, that your gift to the church stands right in front of us this morning. So God, we're grateful for these men and their wives. We're grateful for your grace to us in giving us shepherds to lead, to model, to care for, to love, to pray for, and God, to set an example. And Father, we confess before you as elders of this church that we are imperfect, but we look to you, the perfect shepherd, to be the ultimate shepherd over our care. And we submit to you, Lord, even as you call our church to submit to us in leading the flock that is under our care. So God, would you protect us? Would you protect these men and their families and their wives? Would you fill them with your spirit that as they lead and shepherd the flock that they would do so out of overflow of your work in them? God, would you multiply their lives and multiply their leadership? Would you bless them so that they could be a blessing to many, including every uh, member and person sitting in this church now? So God, we give you thanks. You are faithful, you are good, and you are gracious to us. So we thank you that we can celebrate your call on these men's lives. And we do that this morning as we look to you, our chief shepherd. And together we all said and prayed in Jesus' name, and we say together, amen. 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 Thanks, Ben.